in vain. Hallowed be thy name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. There's power in the name of Jesus. Take the third commandment, for example. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. For years, I simply thought that meant not swearing or cursing using the Lord's name, but I stumbled across a simple but incredible realisation. Because a more literal translation of that commandment actually reads, You shall not use the name of Yahweh for worthlessness. You shall not use the name of Yahweh casually, complacently, without respect, without value. It's the moment in time I realised that I actually break this commandment all the time. And more often than not, I break it at church. How much value, how much worth do you place on the name of Jesus? As I thought through this, it reminded me of a girl called Susan from Uganda. She's 14 years old and from a strictly Islamic family. One day a visiting speaker came to her school. He spoke about this guy called Jesus who claimed he was a son of God and had come to save the world. And right there, Susan decided to give her life to Jesus. When she got home, her father found out and he was furious. In fact, on one occasion in broad daylight, he grabbed Susan and her younger brother and dragged them outside. He held a knife to their throat and said, Susan, if you do not stop going to church and worshiping God, I will kill you and your brother. But Susan didn't stop. Her father grabbed her. He took her to a room in their house and placed a mat on the floor. He told Susan to sit on that mat and do not move until you are willing to deny Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. Her father turned around, walked out of the room and locked the door. Susan's father didn't return to that room for three months. The only way Susan survived was that while her father was out, her brother would dig a hole under the door. He would pour water into it for Susan to lap up. On occasion, he would fry up some banana and slide that under the door to his sister. After about three months, the neighbours began to wonder where Susan was and they asked her brother. He told them and they immediately called the police. When they came, they opened the door and they found Susan. She was sitting on the mat. She was alive, but only just. You see, the bones in her legs had begun to grow and conform to the way she had been sitting. And she weighed 20 kilos. They grabbed her and rushed her to hospital where they began to rehabilitate her. When Susan was asked why she hadn't tried to escape, why she hadn't even left the mat, Without missing a beat, she replied, because my father said, if I was to leave that man, I would be denying Jesus. And I couldn't do that. Worthlessness. It never even seemed to cross her mind, did it? 
This is exactly what the third commandment is about. A faith driven by a passion for God that realises not only to be in relationship with Him, but to be able to call on His name is among the most sacred privileges we have as Christians. A privilege the world can't conceive and a privilege that we so often take for granted. You shall not use the name of Yahweh for worthlessness. Susan wouldn't, do you? The third commandment says this in Deuteronomy. It says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, the Lord Yahweh. You should not misuse his name. Don't treat God's name with worthlessness, casually, complacently, without respect or without value. What a powerful example that we have in this video of someone loving Jesus with all that they have. I want you to think about this little girl and the world that she grew up in. Because in this world, very few people knew about Christ. Very few people worshipped this Christ or showed respect to him. And yet, even though she had never seen him face to face, she valued her relationship with Christ in such a way that it changed everything in her life. It altered her entire life. It, involved, it altered her religion. It altered her family values. It, it altered her societal norms that, that she was a part of. It changed everything. But if you think about it, that's exactly what true salvation does for each one of us. See, every one of us has a story like hers. Oh, no, we weren't asked to deny Christ. We didn't have a knife that was held to our throat or asked to sit upon a mat for three months and wither away to 44 pounds. We weren't asked to do that. And yet, but we, what we were asked to do, when we came to faith in Christ, we were asked that everything would change, that everything would change, our religion, our family belief, our societal norms, everything would change once we came to faith in Christ. You see, before we came to faith in Christ, we were all, well, flippant about God. I know I was. We were kind of, uh, we worshiped at the altar of convenience. We lived for ourselves. And our religion was just that. It was a religion. It wasn't a relationship. In fact, for many people, our religion looked different because for some people, it, it did take the form of church, where we went to church, we sang songs, we prayed prayers, we went through the motions of church, but it didn't affect our life. For other people, their religion looked like this every Sunday or some other form of recreation. And for some of us, our religion was our work, where we would build our name, that we would make our name great, that we would build our empire. That's what it was all about. But then God sent somebody who took a risk, stepped out of their comfort zone, and was willing to share the love of Christ with us, the gospel message, the good news to us. And for some of us, it caused us to stop and think. 
Some of us even initially rejected that message, but then something happened. A sliver of light came through. Truth started to break through the darkness, and it started to pound on this hard heart of ours. And all of a sudden, we started to change, and God showed us that Jesus was true. And it was undeniable that we needed to follow after Christ. And then everything changed for us. Our religion changed. It was no longer a religion. It was a relationship with a living God where we had to come and we had to worship God collectively. Our, our family values changed. No longer were we just following our, what our family had done in, in their lifetime, but we started to evaluate Jesus and his word and we started to take on whatever his word had to say. And that affected also our norms that we would, our values that we would uh, live out every day. It changed everything. And all of a sudden, as God started transforming us from the inside out, we became people of integrity because we were now Christ followers. We had true salvation. That's the transformation that true salvation makes. Has that happened in your life? Has true salvation come and do you appreciate all that God has done? I want you to think about four questions this morning as we go throughout the morning. Here are the questions. Number one, and we'll come back to these, so just think about them right now. Number one, do we see our relationship with God as an awesome privilege? And how does that show in our life? How does it show in our life? Number two, even in the midst of difficulties, are we holding on to Christ as the one we trust? Are we holding on as if we know that there is no one else that we can depend upon other than Christ? Not like we can depend on him. Number three, are you able to have joy in the midst of life circumstances, even if they're less than desirable? Number four, do we value our salvation more than anything else? As we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 to 12, we're going to evaluate these questions. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, I pray, Father, that you would help us to see what an incredible salvation you've given us. And I pray that we would have a deep appreciation for what you've done and that that would reflect in our life. And I pray that in Christ's name, amen. Well, remember the context. If you weren't here last week, remember the context in which Peter is writing. He's writing to a people that have been dispersed abroad, so they have been launched out of their own homes. Everything that was familiar to them was gone. People that they loved were dead. Some of them were dead. And they were in foreign territory scattered abroad. And you would think that they would be down and out, but Peter says, no, no, rejoice in what God has done in your life. And then he has them do inventory and he shows the incredible care of God in just providing salvation how the trinity was involved in our salvation he also wanted them to know what new birth was all about and that they should praise God for the new birth that they had and that not only did that life begin here but they had a future inheritance that was secure in heaven and between here and there we could have joy in the midst of some really difficult circumstances
What I appreciate about God is he's very frank. He didn't say, hey, everything's going to be easy. He said, actually, this life is going to be filled with all kinds of trials. It's going to be filled with all kinds of difficulties. But between here and there, you are to hold on to me. And so what we come to verse 8, which actually is in the context of having joy in the midst of difficulties. And Peter is going to give us four things, four things that should show our excitement for this new salvation. And the first thing is this, that we're going to love Jesus. Look at verse 8. We'll take it phrase by phrase. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. See, this verse is the climax of experiential joy that these Christ followers were to have in the midst of their difficulties. See, the Holy Spirit had so impressed upon them who Jesus Christ was that he, he wrote on the canvas of their heart an image of Christ, that they knew who Christ was. It was a personal relationship that they could have, even though they had not seen him. And the passage says, even though you didn't see him, you love him. Now, I think in Peter's mind, there was a little bit of a a deja vu going back to what Jesus had said to the disciples when he gathered them together. And he says, listen, guys, you guys are blessed because you believe because you see me face to face. But blessed are those that do not see me and yet believe. So I think Peter is thinking about this and he has a deep appreciation for what these believers are doing and that they love Jesus. The fact is this kind of love is actually an evidence of our salvation. My friends, how do you feel about Christ? Do you have a deep love for him? Here's why I think it's an evidence of our salvation. Like these believers, you and I have never seen Jesus. Now, some of us might have perceptions about Christ. We might have a Hollywood perception of Christ. We've watched The Passion of Christ, so we know what Jesus looks like, right? Or we've watched movies where they've talked about Jesus. You might have watched Talladega Nights where a guy prays to the eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus, and it does it in a sacrilegious way. But that's not Christ. That's not who we worship. See, God has poured a very different, he has etched something on our heart that goes deeper. It's because of our love for God that he has poured out in us. Romans 5.5 says this, God has poured out his love, his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Our love for God stems from this awesome, awesome, awesome privilege of having a relationship that was afforded us through the Holy Spirit. And God started pouring his love, and we felt that from the inside out. Here's my question for you. Do you see your relationship with God as a privilege? And how does it show in your life? Sometimes, I friend, friends, I believe that we're flippant about God. We... I'm, I'm not saying this to just step on toes, I'm, but we, we don't really care about being on time for worship. It's really not that important to us. We sometimes come in and we, don't have, we haven't prepared our hearts. We're not ready to worship. It takes us maybe 30 minutes into a service to actually start to think about God. What will we do to show our appreciation to God that we are serious that this is a privilege? 
do we love Christ? The second area is do we trust him? Trust Jesus is an evidence. Look at verse 8. He goes on. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Now the idea of belief here is one of total trust. It is the living by faith and not by sight that, that he's talking about. See, this faith and trust is a total surrender to God. It's a, an abandon saying, okay, God, I am going to believe in you no matter what. When I was a youth pastor, I used to do this thing called a faith drop. I think every youth pastor since the dawn of time has done this exercise, but you have all the kids line up and you have them put their arms alternating. They're facing each other and they're alternating their arms and the whole list, a whole line of kids. And then there's a table and you pick the littlest girl in the youth group and you have them step on the table facing that way. And you say, okay, be stiff and drop. You're to, it's a faith drop. You are to believe. And so she's all nervous and she drops. And of course, everybody carries her down the line and she's, she's okay. Then you take the bigger boy that's in the group, the boy that nobody wants to stand on that table because they think we're going to drop that kid. And yeah, he gets up there and they're like, no, we can't do it. We can't do it. And he drops and he's down the line and he's just fine. And then the youth pastor gets up there on the table. And their kids are like, no, no, this can't happen. Not that fat guy. No, we're not going to do this. And I drop. And this is why you paid me the big bucks back then. <laughs> not really. Because I put my life at risk in these kids' hands. And I was passed down the line. And they didn't drop me, by the way. But, you know, I reflect back on that. That was more an exercise on teamwork than it was really on faith. You know why? Because faith isn't when you can see the arms. It's when you drop knowing that the arms are not there, but you know God is there. You know that his presence, that he will catch you, that he will hold you. See, this life, God says, is going to be filled with difficulties. We are going to have all kinds of problems in this life. We're going to have doubts. We're going to have storms. We're going to have difficulties and crises of faith that come upon our life. And there's even going to be well-meaning people that are going to come up to you and quote Romans 8.28 and say, hey, everything's going to work out for the good. Everything's going to work out for the good. And you get this image in your mind that, yes, Yes, everything is it's going to be a happy ending it's going to be a happy ending to the story just kind of like a friendly sunday right after a good meal it's a happy ending it's a happy ending life and yet that's not what romans 8 28 says look more clearly it says this for we know the idea of belief we know that in all things god works for the good of those who love him See, the happy ending is the faith that God produces in our heart, though our circumstances might turn out terribly bad. Though we might lose the job. Though that loved one may die of cancer. Though we face bankruptcy. See, the belief and trust is that God can hold me in the midst of the bad stuff. And that's what gives me peace in the midst of a storm. Here's my question. Even in the midst of difficulties, 
Are we holding on to Christ as the one we trust? This is what true salvation does. Yes, we're going to doubt, but we don't give up. Here's the third thing that Peter talks about in verse 8, that we rejoice in Christ. Look at this. Not only do we love Christ, do we trust Christ, but we rejoice in him. It says, you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. If this were an occasion, it would read, love plus trust equals glorious joy. See, this teaches us that every trial that we face, God is going to teach us something about himself. And in the end, he will give us joy through that process. Even though it might be through difficult circumstances, God will teach us joy through the process. Now, we see that throughout the scriptures. Go all the way back to Abraham. Remember, Abraham had one son that he waited a very long time to have. And God says, hey, Abraham, go sacrifice your son on Mount Moriah. He takes his son without any argument. And he takes him up and he says to the servants, we will come back. I think he truly believed that God would resurrect his son after he offered him as a sacrifice. And he raised his hand and he went to stab his son, to sacrifice his son. And God said, Jesus was there. The angel of the Lord said, no, stop. I now see that you fear me. What did Abraham learn through all of that? And was there joy in the midst of that difficulty when he was walking down the mountain with his son? You better believe it. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The King Nebuchadnezzar says, at the sound of the trumpet, at the sound of the lyre, you are to bow down and worship the image that I have given. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no way, we're not doing it. He says, if you will not do it, I am going to heat up the furnace seven times hotter, and I'm going to throw you in there. And they said, we will not do it. Our God is able to rescue us. Our God will rescue us. But even if our God did not rescue us, we would not bow down. M midst of difficulties, they're thrown into the fire. Then all of a sudden, there Jesus is again the angel of God, with them. Can you imagine the lesson that they learned after that experience, after they walked out? Can you imagine the joy that they had? How about Paul in the New Testament? The apostle Paul says, I have an affliction, Lord, a thorn in the flesh. It says in 2 Corinthians that he sought out the Lord three times. God, remove this thorn in my flesh. And what did God say to him? He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. We see what Paul learned because he says, most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weakness, that the power of God would be perfected. My friends, we see the formula is true. If we love, we trust, then it results in glorious joy. Here's my question. Do you have joy? Do you have joy even if your life circumstances are less than desirable? You see, when we have true salvation, it's obvious from this passage that affects our life. We will have love. We will have trust. We will have joy. And I'm so thankful that God gives us practical ways in which we get to express that joy. Right now, we're going to pause. 
And we're going to pause and we're going to do three things. We're going to take communion in celebration and remember what God has done. We're also going to give financially. Do you realize that giving financially is a command of God, but it's also a privilege of God? And it's a way that we can act and worship. And then we're going to send out. There is a team that's going to be going out to Thailand, and we're going to pray for them as they go off. But first, communion. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul said, he says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It was broken for you. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, let's show our love for God in this great salvation he's given us. The one caution that Paul gave was that we should not do this recklessly. We should think about our life because we don't want to drink and eat judgment upon ourselves. God sees this as serious. And so as the elements are being passed out, I want you to ask God to cleanse your heart. Ask God to make you whole. Whatever sins there are, confess them. Let's do this out of celebration for God. Well, we have one last point in our passage. The last point is, starts in verse 9. Not only do we love Jesus, trust Jesus, rejoice in Jesus, but we hold on to Jesus. It says this in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, the key word here is obtain. The word obtain means to grasp on and don't let go of the reward that God has for you. Now, the reward that he is talking about is this salvation. And it's an appeal to the believers, no matter what you're going through, hold on tight. God has given you a rich salvation. But built into this is an idea of security, of eternal security. I know some people wrestle with the idea of whether somebody is eternally secure, but get the idea of the entire passage here, taken into consideration last week as well. Remember, God elected us. He chose us in his foreknowledge. He had us on his mind and on our hearts before the creation of the world. So that's the past. At present, we gave our life to the Lord, and he says, you have a new birth, and you have that secure in me. He says that in the passage. And then he says, in the future, there is an inheritance that you're going to have. So in the past, in the present, in the future, all this salvation, we are to hold on to, we are to grasp onto it, because God doesn't make mistakes. He didn't make a mistake in eternity past when he chose you. He didn't make a mistake when he sent his Holy Spirit to convict your heart. And he is not making a mistake by sending you, giving you a future and a hope that isn't questionable. It is for certain. It's 100% that we will be with Christ. That's an awesome thing. And so this is what he wants us to hold on to. But then to add to the motivation, Peter gives history of the salvation. In the last three verses, he talks about how the prophets long to understand about the salvation. Take a look at what he says in verse 10. It says in verse 10, 
Consider this salvation. Look at the searching here. Consider this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. What did they do? They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted two things. The sufferings of Christ, underscore that, and the subsequent glories, the glories of Christ. So what we have here is the prophets are prophesying about a grace that they wouldn't understand or they wouldn't be able to obtain, but it would be so in the future. Now, what we see here is the rule of inspiration. We see men of God that were moved along by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter says this, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what we see that happening here is that these prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were writing things that they didn't even understand. Let me give you an example. King David wrote Psalm 22. I don't believe that he understood fully what he was writing and all the meaning that was in his words, but he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. He wrote about something that didn't exist in that day. He wrote about Roman crucifixion. This is what he says in Psalm 22. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now here's the crazy part. Crucifixion wouldn't be created for another 800 years when the Romans would come around. The Romans didn't, they weren't even a blip on the radar screen. So this is prophets that are writing things that they didn't completely understand. And they searched out two things. They searched out the suffering of Christ and the glory of Christ. These are two very specific things. They searched out the suffering of Christ because there were passages like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, that talked about a suffering Messiah. There were many passages, actually 55, over 55 different references of the birth, life, and death of Christ in the Old Testament. So they had much evidence there, and they searched it out. They wanted to understand it, but they also wanted to understand the glories of Christ. See, the glory of Christ was the return of Christ. It says in Zechariah that he would return on the Mount Olivet and that he would bring judgment upon the world. He would be the righteous judge. That's where the separation of the sheep and the goats would take place. And so the, the prophets are like, how do we have a suffering Messiah uh, in this sense and then also a victorious Messiah? They could not understand how the two came together. It was almost as if there was Mount Calvary and there was Mount Olivet and they could see those mountains. But what they couldn't see was the mystery in between called the bride of Christ. They couldn't understand that. They longed to know it, but they weren't given all that information. In fact, in verse 12, it says they were serving other people. Take a look at verse 12. It says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which the angels long to look for. See what he's saying? He's saying, listen, this message that the prophet spoke, it would be a foundation that would go far beyond them. And they knew that. 
They knew that they were serving a different generation. And then in comes Jesus. He lives a perfect life. He has a three-year ministry. He dies on a cross. He resurrects. And then all of a sudden, the modern-day apostles, they are starting to understand what the prophets spoke about. It's coming together. And they take all the information that was given in the Old Testament. Now it's coming together, and it forms their message. Look at Peter's message in Acts chapter 2. He refers to the Old Testament prophets. We see that it formed the foundation of this message. And now it is complete. It's like there was 2,000 years of history that God compiled together and gave it as a gift of salvation for mankind. Can you imagine someone taking 2,000 years to prepare a precious gift for you? And he hands it to you. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to say, you know what? (laughs) Let's just store that up there for a little bit. I got other things to do. This is a precious and amazing salvation that God has given us. We are going to have such a deep appreciation because we have been a recipient of God's unbelievable, amazing grace of God. And you know what? The angels were in the stands. They were in the stands observing this. Ephesians 3, chapter 3, verse 10 says, they were amazed at the manifold wisdom of God and how he revealed the church. And revealed Christ who broke down the barriers, the dividing walls of hostility. This is the amazing salvation that you and I have. So incredible. So here's the question. Do we value this salvation more than anything else in this life? My friends, if we value this salvation, then it will be the greatest honor, honor for you and I to carry it out to those around us. See, that very message of salvation 2,000 years ago, it transformed the world. It is still transforming the world. And guess what? God has chosen you as a Christ follower to be that instrument of transformation. I want you to know that there's no political figure that we could ever elect that is going to transform the heart. Never, ever, ever. We can put all kinds of signs out and it will do not a thing for the heart. But guess what? God has given you the power as a Christ follower. The power is inside of you. It is the message. It is the gospel. And you get the privilege, you and I, to deliver it and to live it. What an awesome thing. So here's our final question. Our final question as we make application is, how do we stand firm? And how do we stand out in this true salvation? We do it by giving it away. There's four principles that we're trying to drill into our heads that all come from the scriptures. Number one, we are to have a go mentality. I'm praying that God would flip a switch in every one of our minds to understand I'm not going to work to be a nurse. I'm not going to work to be a businessman. I'm not going to work to clean the building. I'm not going to work to do these tasks. I'm going to do those tasks as a missionary for God. Everything we do, go mentality. Number two, we understand our Jerusalem, Acts 1-8, that we have a core, a circle of responsibility. We say, God, yes, I will take responsibility for my Jerusalem. I will actually identify my Jerusalem. I will pray for my Jerusalem. 
Number three, I will be intentional in loving people. I'm not just going to say I'm praying for people. I'm actually going to get in close proximity with them. I will invite them into my home. I will be involved in their life. And number four, I will love them. I'm not going to treat people as a project. I'm simply going to love them. I'm going to ask Evan Miller to come up at this time. Evan Miller is uh, one of our deacons at Mission View. I'm excited about Evan's life and him and Jamie. They just had a baby. But I also want you to know that God has gifted Evan. Evan will be presenting the message next week. Some of you know that, uh, that I'm preaching a lot but I want you to know that we have a preaching team. And Evan is going to be a part of that preaching team. A couple weeks ago, you heard from Pat Culpepper. You will hear from our elders. We have a preaching team. But long before Evan came to Mission View, he's been living out these principles. He was an example to me. So Evan, I want you to help us out here. How did you, first of all, get a go mentality? I think I got a go mentality just by, I don't know, I... I, I, I think back and I look at um, Jesus and I look at the gospel and even just looking at the word gospel, it's interesting, it has go in it. And um, you see Jesus in the, in the middle of that message too, it's, it's a message that changes lives and it gives people hope. And you see what Jesus did. He came from heaven to earth and he left behind riches, he left behind royalty, he left behind a lot of things, he left behind comfort to come all the way from heaven to earth, and not just to visit for a season, but as Steve was saying, I mean, he lived, he grew, he died um, for us on our behalf. And um, I just remember thinking about that as I moved into a new neighborhood um, several years back, and just thinking that if Jesus was willing to do all of that for me, but I'm not willing to go outside, go next door, knock on my neighbor's doors, get to know them, then what does that say about my faith? Does it say that it's true? So I think that's, that's really what it comes down to is having, that, 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 um, having the gospel at the forefront and realizing that life is short and people are, are put in your life for a reason. Evan, tell us about that core because you got involved in your neighborhood. Some of these are pictures of kids that were in the neighborhood. Tell us about this core. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I think, I feel like my core is constantly changing. So some of those kids that are on the screen there, they're, they're at the time they were junior high boys. And I mean, I, I would have never guessed moving in a neighborhood that I would ever be involved with, with anything like that, getting to know young people and their families. Um, some of these, these uh, young guys were, were um, from, from families where they maybe they didn't have fathers, they just needed influence, things like that. And um, I, I, again, the core was just always changing. So it's just getting to know them, getting to know their families, getting to know um, uh, their, their, their moms, grandmas even. And um, something you know, really interesting happens through that. You get to know the, the whole family. And like Steve was saying, you, know, you, you, you begin to see them um, you know, as people and people with needs, and you'll do what you can to, to love them. Now, my wife and I just moved into a new neighborhood a few weeks ago, and a lot of those relationships from the old neighborhood still continue today. Uh, we run into each other at the supermarket all the time um, and, and just happen to see the same, same faces. But now as we're in this new neighborhood, some of the neighbors that I've gotten to, to know are, are much different. Most of them are in their 70s. They're retired. Um, it's a much different community. So I, I look at this, and I think, man, it's just amazing. Like, 
both sets of these people are people I would have never known, never gotten to know. I almost have no business you know, being and, and, and getting to know some of these people, but it's through Jesus. Jesus brings us um, together and brings people in our lives that need to hear his message. So last thing, Evan, what are some ways that you've been intentional in loving people? Now, it could be in, in this neighborhood or your past neighborhood or even at the workplace at Merriweather where you work. Yeah, I think you, I think you got to start just by praying. You got to pray that the Lord will open your eyes and show you that people need the Lord. And like Steve said a few minutes ago, genuinely caring for people, not viewing them as, as projects. Um, and, and he'll be faithful to bring people in your path. It, it, it always shocks me. It surprises me. I know it shouldn't, but it, it just does. Just the, the, how, how faithful God is to bring people in your path that, that need to um, hear his message. And um, just as you, um, as you pray for those people to come into your life, um, just start small. I mean, one of the things my, my wife and I like to do, we walk around our neighborhood. And as we see people that drive by or walk by or we pass their houses, we wave. It's very simple. And through that, conversations come. And after that, after we see them a few times, we invite them over for dinner. Um, we go out for pizza, whatever. And um, it's, just, you just, it's just starting small, and it's praying and, and not giving up. You won't be perfect at this. None of us ever will be. And uh, it's just being faithful and, and asking God to bring people in your life. Very good. One of the things that I, I do, my wife and I do, when we do have people over to our house, we often ask them, tell us your story. And that starts us on a, an incredible conversation where inevitably they'll say, well, what's your story? Well, I'm glad you asked. And we get to talk. Um, as we close out, I just want to pray for the body. I want us to appreciate this unbelievable salvation. And I hope there's a sense of what an awe it is to have this salvation. And so this morning, I simply want to close by praying. And then I'm going to have Kelsey come up and do some closing announcements. So let's, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you give us the ability to carry the good news. You give us the ability because you've put the power within us, your Holy Spirit. And I thank you so much for this body. I hear so many incredible stories of people that are loving people in their workplace that are reaching out. By preaching this message, there's certainly not a condemnation at all that nobody's doing it. On the contrary, Lord, you know the work that's going on. Lord, you turned the world upside down with 12 committed men and many women that came along and wanted to be a part of the mission. And that grew to 3,000, 5,000, millions. And now we see in our world today the gospel going out and affecting people like Susan in Uganda. Lord, you are orchestrating so much because you are a great God. And Lord, we realize our role. We're simply a messenger. We don't have to win the argument. We simply have to present the evidence. Your Holy Spirit will convince people that they need Christ. Help us to value and appreciate the salvation that you have given us. 
love you, God. We trust you, God. We rejoice in you, God. And we hold on to you, God. In Christ's name.